Good morning, everybody. Thanks to the uh, opening team, to the musicians, to Wendy who was doing the PowerPoint. And a thank you for the people who never get thank you, and that's the guys in the sound booth. I mean, you know they're doing a good job, but nobody notices them. So, well done, Ted, so far. As uh, as David mentioned, we are concluding our series this morning in the study of the prophet Isaiah. We're into the last chapter, chapter 66. We by no means exhausted the study of Isaiah. Uh, You could spend countless hours studying that book and still not exhaust it. But uh, we're coming to to the last chapter. We're going to conclude this morning and then move on to another series, as David mentioned. But our study in Isaiah is uh, interesting in that there's a theme that goes throughout the book of Isaiah. God's warning his people. He's chastising his people. He's promising his people of things that will come and will come to be. And that's a common theme throughout the book. And this last chapter, in a lot of ways, is a continuation in thought, description, and application of the previous uh, few chapters that Wade and that Carrie spoke on. So I'll be continuing on in a more specific set of themes in that sense. But this morning I want to look at the warnings and promises that God gave the Israelites through Isaiah and also see how they relate to the New Testament church. Chapter 66 can be broken down into three segments. You have the characteristics of those whom God esteems. You have the truth that God exposes in the self-righteous. And you have the future of Jerusalem and her inhabitants. So if you've got your Bibles, open them to chapter 66 of Isaiah. If you don't have a Bible, you can pick up the Brown Pew Bibles. and It's found on page 1165. But we're going to be jumping around throughout the Bible. Um, so hopefully you'll get a bit of an, an exercise and a workout in uh, where the different books of the Bible are. But let's start off with the first two verses in uh, chapter 66 of Isaiah. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. There's nothing we can build that will impress God ever. End of statement. In Barcelona, there's a church that's under construction. In fact, it's been under construction for 133 years and it's still not finished. It still has an estimated 11 years to go. They're actively working on it. It's not just sitting there. But it's been 133 years. It's one of the grandest churches I've ever seen. The Sagrada Familia is an incredible sight to behold. If you've never looked at it, look it up on the internet, the Sagrada Familia. If you don't remember the word or the name of it, just Google huge church that's still under construction. It'll come up on there. The pictures of it are astounding. By all human accounts, it's one of the greatest monuments to God in human achievement. And arguably, one of the greatest churches never yet completed. But to God, quite frankly, it's unimpressive. For the one for whom heaven is his throne and the earth his footstool, to the one who created the beauty the complexity of the universe by simply speaking it into existence. 
Our greatest achievements are feeble next to God's own. God's not impressed with what we build him. Our craftsmanship doesn't impress him. But hold on a minute, Jim, you say. Didn't God command the building of the tabernacle in the desert? Didn't God choose Solomon to build the first permanent temple for him? God did choose Solomon to build the temple. God did command the building of the tabernacle in the desert. But he didn't do that so that we could show him how good we can build and follow instructions. He didn't do that so we could show him the achievements of our hands. God did this to have a place for people to come and connect with God and to be a visible reminder of God's presence in their lives. That's the reason God commanded the building of structures like that. But there's a different kind of temple, a different kind of building, not made with stone or expensive wood or fine gems, a temple that God indeed wishes to dwell within more than any other building. The kind of temple desire, the kind of temple that God desires is not one made with our own hands, but rather it's one made with our own hearts. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 reads, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Incredible. The most permanent structures that God wants to live in is not the buildings that will live for hundreds and hundreds of years. But he wants to live with inside us. We'll live for eternity. What an incredible thing that is for God to want. Well, how do you build a temple with your heart? Over thousands of years, man has gotten very good at building buildings with his hands. But how do you build one with your heart? Well, you do it by using the tools that are named in Isaiah chapter 66. And the end of the second verse In that chapter, it reads, This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. See, these are the tools that God says we need if we're going to build him a living temple. We need humility, we need contriteness of heart, and we need to tremble at his word. These are the attributes of someone that God esteems. These are the tools God told Isaiah would build faithful worshipers. Well, let's take a look at a closer look at these three things. Firstly, what does it mean to be humble? Well, boiled down to its most smallest denominator, humility is simply power under control. You don't have to be the leader of a country to have power. We all have power. We all have authority. But you may say to me, I'm at the bottom of the totem pole, the bottom of the ladder, the bottom of the heap. There's nobody below me. There's only people above me. I have no authority over anybody. But you do. We all have authority over ourselves. We all have authority over our thoughts, our words, and our actions. When one's attitude is desiring to build others up around them without being concerned about one's own standing, then humility is the attitude that's being shown. Being humble is about putting others first, putting others' needs in front of your own. Sometimes you have to use your authority to lead, but it can never be about putting me first. 
This is something our society lacks a great deal of today. In a world of do what makes you feel good. You're the most important. You've got your rights. The law is behind you. You are the most important person in the world to yourself. In a world like that, humility is getting harder to find. But power under control can never be about what's in it for me. That's simply arrogance that gets out of control. And that's totally the opposite of humility. Well, if we have a definition for humility, where do we get it? I mean, we don't go to a tool store. and Can you imagine going to Home Depot? Where's your humility aisle? I mean, I, I, I go in there sometimes, and there's always somebody who says, did you find everything you're looking for? And sometimes I'll say with a smile on my face, I lost my sanity the other day. Can you tell me what aisle I can find sanity in? And it's a look of bewilderment upon their, on their faces. But you can't go to a tool store and find humility. Well, where can you get it from? Well, it comes from wisdom. And wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. In James chapter 3, verse 13, it reads, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. And where does wisdom come from? Well, we're told that in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So that's where you get wisdom from. You have to go before God, and you have to go before Him in a healthy fear, a healthy trembling. Well, the first tool to construct the living temple is humility, and humility is necessary to exhibit the second trait that God listed here, and that is somebody with a contrite heart. Now, the Hebrew word used here that we translate as contrite can also be translated as lame and cripple. So another way to say it is God esteems someone who has a broken spirit. These are also the attributes of someone who is remorseful or repentant. That comes from a broken spirit. Psalm chapter 51, verses 16 and 17, it reads, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. So there we have the first two tools required in constructing a living temple. Someone who's humble and someone who's contrite in spirit. Now these first two attributes can be found in anybody. The most committed Christian to the most ardent atheist. There are atheists who are very humble people out there. They are more concerned with giving to others than they are with receiving for themselves. You can have a broken spirit Maybe not towards God, but you can have done something in your life that has broken you, that you are truly remorseful for. You don't have to be a Christian to have these first two tools. But the third one, that's where God steps it up a notch. You cannot be an atheist and have the third tool in God's tool belt. God said he esteems somebody who trembles at my word. Well, you can't be an atheist and tremble at God's word. The two are incompatible. It's like oil and water. If anything, the atheist is one who mocks God's word. In Hebrew, the word that's translated here as trembles is only used five other times in the Bible. Four times the word is translated as tremble or a variant. Trembles, trembled, trembling. The word is also translated twice as fear or feared. 
The word is found in four different books of the Old Testament. It's found in Judges, 1 Samuel, Ezra, and in chapter 66 of Isaiah. It's found twice in the book of Ezra and twice in Isaiah chapter 66. Well, let's take a look at the first place that it's found. And I want to start to look at the context of this word and how that fits into those whom God esteems. The first occurrence where you can find the Hebrew word translated as trembles is found in Judges chapter 7, verse 3. And it reads, Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 men remained. So here Gideon was about to go into battle, a battle he was commanded to go into by God. But God knew that if the Israelites went in there with strength, that when they win the battle, they would have bragging rights. Look at what our might and power could do. So God wanted to make it known to the Israelites that it wasn't by your might that you're about to win this battle, but by the power of God. So one of the first ways God looked to do this was he told Gideon, I want you to call your army. I want you to whittle it down. And so the first way that Gideon did that was he simply told them, anybody who trembles with fear, you can go home. It's okay. And over 20,000 people did just that on that day. Well, the second example of Hebrews, where the word is found that's, that's translated in trembles or fear, is found in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 13. And in there it reads, When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. So here we have the second use of that Hebrew word, which here is translated feared. See, in the first example, the context is around men who feared for their life. But here in 1 Samuel, the context is about someone who feared for the Ark of the Covenant. Both examples revolve around the emotion of fear. In the third third example, we can find that in Ezra chapter 9, verse 4, and chapter 10, verse 3. In chapter 9, verse 4, it reads, Then everyone who trembled at the words of of the God of Israel gathered round me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. And in chapter 10, verse 3, we have, Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all those women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. See, the story in Ezra is one of sin and repentance among the people. Ezra the priest had just been told by the leaders of a group of Israelites who had returned to Israel from exile. Ezra had just been told that they had done what God had commanded them not to do. The Israelites had been intermarrying with other people from around the surrounding nations. Now this was a problem in God's eyes because within those other nations was a form of idolatry that was detestable to God. And God had commanded the Israelites, you're not to intermarry with them because I don't want that idolatry that is detestable to me intermingling and becoming a part of your life. But it had happened. 
And at some point, the realization of that happened, and all the people said, we need to make this right with God. We need to make this right. The first place it's used in Ezra was then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. And the second place it's used of those who fear the commands of our God. We have trembling and fear around the word of God, the commands of God. Now the context for all of this in Ezra is found in Ezra chapter 10, verse 14. And there it says, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Their fear was such that they feared the consequences of disobeying God's command, God's word. That's the context around there. So here we have three examples of that Hebrew word. I've tried looking up the pronunciation of it. I can't find it. I can't read Hebrew. But I looked through the, um, the lexicons, the concordances, and it's only used six times in the Old Testament. It's used in the context of fearing for one's life. It's used in the context of fearing for the safety of something else, the Ark of the Covenant. It's used in the context of the fear of the consequences of disobeying God's commands. And it's this third one that I believe is also the context that we find in Isaiah chapter 66. God esteems somebody who trembles at his word. God esteems somebody who trembles at the consequences of disobeying God's word. That's the context. The application to that then becomes a reverence for God's word. God's word becomes so important in your life that you begin to revere it. Fear can be a healthy thing if it's in the right context, if it's in the right setting. Fear can be a life-saving emotion. Fear can be healthy in that it's a powerful motivator to do the right thing. If I ever get on an aircraft as a passenger, you know how the flight attendants always start off with their good morning, welcome aboard, and then they go through their pre-flight briefing? Well, if I ever have a flight attendant say to me, I just want you all to feel rest assured, we've got two of the most fearless pilots the airline has ever had sitting up front. I'm going to be looking for the exit and looking for two different pilots who have fear in their lives. I want a pilot who's scared to death of flying in that thunderstorm that's out there Scared to death because they want to preserve their life and my life along with it. Fear can be a healthy thing. I've always been in awe at the power and the might and the beauty that's in a thunderstorm. I enjoy sitting and watching them from a distance. But as a pilot, I knew that that power and might was to be respected if I was to stay healthy. In Isaiah 66, that Trembling or the respect for God's word transforms itself into a reverence for God's word. If the context around trembles at my word is that of fear for the consequences of breaking God's word, and the application becomes one of reverence for God's word, and it's a reverence to be in awe of God's power and beauty. If that's the case, 
then we are esteemed, it says, by God himself. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, puts God's word in such a wonderful way. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We'll all give an account to someday to God. We'll all have our sins laid bare before us that God forgave us. We'll all have the things that God has blessed us with. But someday all will give an account before God. We often refer to the Bible as the word of God. And it is. It's an inspiration that the authors had to write down what they did in the Bible. But it's more than that. The word is God. And I want you to understand that subtle distinction. The word of God is is God. It's alive, as the author of Hebrews wrote. It's breathing. It's working in people's lives. It's dividing their lives, right from wrong, good from bad. John introduces Jesus Christ as the Word in the first chapter of his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I'll add to that, the Word is God. Not only did John say he was God, but today we can say he is God and he always will be God. John also goes on to say in in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The reverence that we are to have for God's word is not only his written word found in the Bible, but it's also in his son, the word that became flesh and dwelt amongst us. God himself is the word and is an eternal word. And we are to revere both the word of God and God the word in the form of God the Father and God his Son, Jesus Christ. Well, the next four verses that are in Hebrews 66 is in stark contrast to what God esteems. In fact, Isaiah is confronting the Israelites by accusing them of having a form of religion, but not a heart that is reverent for God or his commands. Their sacrifices and offerings at that point were external in nature. They didn't come from the heart. They were a form of self-righteousness in God's eyes. In their hearts, they were murderers, perverters of God's dietary laws, and idolaters. Isaiah 66, chapter, Isaiah 66 verse 3, it reads, But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a man. And whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns memorial incense, like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways and their souls delight in their abominations. That's pretty powerful language coming from somebody to people who thought they were doing a good job. God wasn't upset with what they were sacrificing. I'm assuming they were sacrificing the proper animals, the proper grain offerings, the proper drink offerings. But it was the hypocrisy with their sacrifice that God was upset with. The people had chosen their own ways, Isaiah said. In chapter 64, 
of Isaiah. God laid it bare before the Israelites. Isaiah makes a statement there. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. This is a very graphic statement that Isaiah is making in that day. All of our works are like filthy rags. It's a graphic statement of the depth that Israel had sunk to in regard to the hypocrisy of God's law. The filthy rags here is an analogy of the cloths that would have been left behind following a woman's menstrual cycle. This is very abrupt. It's very graphic and it's very to the point that Isaiah brought to the Israelites of that day. This is how low you have sunk, he said. It's interesting that Isaiah includes himself. Isaiah said, all of us have become as one who is unclean. God wasn't winnowing out the good with the bad here. He was including that whole nation of Israel in that statement. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29. And if Isaiah is, is condemning the whole nation, Jesus, when he was on this earth, specifically singled out the Pharisees at that time. And he quoted from Isaiah pretty much the same way. Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 and 9, it reads, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Here Jesus is calling out specifically the hypocrisy that the Pharisees were exhibiting in their teaching and their rule, ruling of that time. Their righteousness came from following the law rather than a reverence of obedience to God's law. They put their self-worth in the point of the law rather than the spirit of the law. Even worse, worse, the Pharisees at that time were weaving in their own traditions into God's law. And in the process, they nullified the power of that word. The power of God himself was nullified before the people by the teaching of the Pharisees of that day. God did not command the Torah so that man could save himself and thus put himself on a pedestal and say, look how good I am. That's not what the Torah was intended for. But the Torah sure had a way of pointing out men's deficiencies. The nation of Israel was never able to keep the law that was handed down to Moses in the Torah. Not in its entirety. Not even close. The reality is, none of us are capable of keeping any laws in their entirety. I tried to look up on the internet, how many laws are there in the country of Canada? Yeah, I got anywhere from 2.6 million to 4.5 million. I mean, we've got criminal codes, civil codes, we've got municipal codes, tax codes, transportation codes, building code, electrical codes, labor codes. The list goes on and on. I wouldn't be surprised if there's not a code book out there for, de for designing a code book. Um, we've gotten to that point. Millions of laws within this country. And you could say, Come on, Jim, how do you expect any of us to obey all of those laws? I mean, last winter in frustration, I took that shovel of snow in my driveway and I threw it back on the street. And I, I, I know I broke the bylaw in doing that, but come on, let's be reasonable. How many of us have ever obeyed the speed limit? Except when we see the police car behind us. 
That's a lot of laws. But the Israelites, they had 613 laws in the Torah. 613 times God said, you shall or you shall not. That's not as many as two, three, four million, but it's still a lot. And come on, you don't expect us to obey all of them all the time. We're going to slip up. Let's look at Adam. In the book of Genesis, there's just one law that God gave Adam. Just one. One simple law. Just one. Only one. He made it very clear to him. Just don't eat from that tree over there, the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil. He didn't say to him, don't eat it you know, when the tree's not good for, for, for season, when the, when the fruit's not ripe. Don't eat on it from Monday to Friday, but Saturday, it wasn't complicated. God simply said, don't eat from that tree. And he even told him why. He said, surely the day that you do, you will die. You can't get any more clear than Just one law, Adam. We all know how that turned out. We're incapable of saving ourselves in any way, shape, or form by following laws. Laws point out to us our deficiencies. They don't point out to us our salvation. Only one person in history, in the history of mankind, has ever been perfect. And I'm so glad that Jesus brought salvation by grace and not something we have to earn or that we can even earn for that matter. We can never earn salvation even if we tried our hardest. It's the gift that we don't deserve because of our disobedience. Just like in Isaiah's day, the people were disobedient to God back then just as we are today. But God so graciously offered us a gift and all we have to do is reach out and accept it. To reject God's gift of salvation by grace today will reap the same harvest as Isaiah predicted in his day. That's a harvest of God's judgment. God's judgment is swift when he applies it. It's complete and it's deserving. None of us will be able to argue that we didn't deserve God's judgment. God's judgment did indeed come to be for the Israelites when Babylon invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Isaiah's prophecy came true. This is something I don't think we spend enough time today, and that's talking about God's judgment. We do a very good job of talking about God's love and his desire to have that relationship with him. But I've come to the conclusion that I believe my generation has failed the next generation in not spending enough time on God's judgment, not spending enough time on the consequences of disobeying God's word. And I speak in generalities. I know that we do teach about God's judgment, but I think it deserves more time and, and uh, study than what we give it. Well, what are the reasons for God to bring calamity to mankind? Well, the first reason is a punishment for those who willfully are disobedient towards God. This is God's judgment towards the unrepentant. Probably the majority of mankind will face this judgment at some point in the future. Those who say in their hearts there is no God, those who have no fear for God, those who arrogantly defy God. For these people, God's judgment will be sadly eternal. There will be no turning away from it when that judgment comes down. For a time, God is holding back that final judgment because he's not wanting anyone to be lost while they're alive in this world. But eventually it will come to pass and it will be eternal. 
Well, the second reason that God will bring calamity is to discipline those he calls his own. Now we've got kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. Just because you're saved doesn't make you perfect. You're still capable of sinning and falling into temptation, just as you were before you were saved. But the big, the big difference is, is if you're a Christian, is when that happens, you are remorseful. You are repentant. You don't want to sin, but we're at constant odds with our body in that respect. And sometimes it happens. But you can be assured that if you've called upon Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you can drift away from him. You can run away from him. But he's going to come looking for you. And he's going to at times bring calamity upon your life to get your attention. Just as any loving father brings discipline to his children, so that discipline brings correction and that correction stops the hurt that can happen if that continues. God is that loving father to his children as well. The Bible is full of examples of God using calamity to wake his people up from their sinful slumber and bring them back into a right relationship. Isaiah was warning about this. He was predicting about this. A lot of the Old Testament has that where God is saying, if you follow my commands, this is the blessing you will receive. If you don't, this is what's going to happen. And it's going to be heavy and it's going to be hard upon you. But I do it because I love you. Well, the book of Isaiah ends with the promise that though God's judgment will be severe, it will not result in the total destruction of Israel. See, a time will come when God's fury will rain down like fire upon his enemies. Though God's fury and judgment will consume many, it will not consume all. Israel is still God's chosen people, God's chosen nation. Just as it was in the time of Abraham, when God said to Abraham, I'm going to make a nation from you that will be great amongst the world. You will be my chosen people. That has not changed. Even to this day, Israel is still God's chosen people. But it's a nation that has wandered away from God. But there is a time when that restoration will come about. And Isaiah was prophesying about this. Jerusalem will one day be restored and it will be restored to a glory that will capture the attention of all the nations. Israel right now is just this tiny little state in the world where it's the only time the media talks about it is when there's civil unrest. But there's going to be a time coming when all of the nations will sit up and take notice of Israel, not for their civil unrest, but for the God of the universe being there with them. God doesn't say when this will happen, but when it does, it will be swift. And Isaiah describes the speed at which that will happen as being equal to that of a woman giving birth as soon as she enters labor. Labor and childbirth can be a long and drawn out process. And before the advent of modern medicine, oftentimes it would lead to a mother's death because that labor was so long and so arduous that the mother could not bear it any longer. But for the rebirth of Jerusalem, it will be quick and miraculous. And when God gives the word, it will be just like Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 7 to 13. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. 
Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who's ever seen such things? Can a country, can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad over her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her. For you will nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. For this is what the Lord says. I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. What a wonderful blessing that is to look forward to. And as Christians, we can rejoice in that with God's chosen people. Because we too have been chosen. We're not the chosen people equal in every sense to the Israelites. That's still God's chosen people. But God says he's adopted us as heirs into his kingdom as well. And we can take so much joy in that. For God, time isn't always as important as timing. We haven't been told when this is going to happen. It could happen today. It could happen this very hour. But when it does happen... Jerusalem and those who love her will be cared for with the love that a mother cares for a newborn child. This new Jerusalem will be a place once again for people to come and worship God. God will send out missionaries from her and they will gather followers from the surrounding nations and beyond. This is found in the last part of chapter 66 of Isaiah. From those who come to worship in his temple, he will choose those to minister, priests, Levites, People who will continue to lead the God, to lead the people in God's commands. Now, none of this, is, none of this has happened yet. But as I said, it could happen at any time. Matthew chapter 24 records Jesus' warnings to be prepared and keep watch for future events. We who are part of the New Testament church are to be prepared so we will not be taken by surprise when things that are prophesied regarding the future come to pass. But we need to do more than just be prepared ourselves. We need to be sounding the alarm and warning those who reject God's word of the fate that awaits them from God's judgment. Be in constant prayer for them that they would heed God's warnings and turn to the one and only who could save them, Jesus Christ. I'll close with a story that I I heard a little while ago. It's a fictitious story from a movie. But it was about a young black man living in the southern states in the time of the Depression, just trying to survive. And he was walking with his friends, and they were walking past this pretty little white church in the country. And the man's name was Ike, and and he said to his friends, you know, I went into that church one day. I just wandered in, wondering what was going on in there. And he said, I was terrified. I I didn't know if I'd get out alive. The people in there were so cold and distant to me, they wanted nothing to do with me, and I fled from there as fast as I could. And when I got out of there, I heard the Lord speak to me. And God said, he says, Ike, what were you doing in that church? And I says to the Lord, I says, I just wanted to see what they did in that church. But I was afraid and I ran away. And the Lord says to me, he says, Ike, you're a better man than I am. I says, Lord, how can I be better than you? And, And God said to Ike, he says, I've been trying for decades to get into that church and I still can't get in. If you take anything home today, 
Take this message. Don't close the door of your heart to God. Open it wide. Throw it wide open. Invite Him in. And just see the reverence, the awe, the power that you'll observe when God enters your heart. That song we just sang more eloquently says anything I could ever say in a prayer. So I'll make it short and sweet. Open your heart to God. Open the doors. And just do what we sang in that last song. Go out there and do it. Amen. Thank you.